Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in the middle of a series titled Caring for Your Soul. And this series began two weeks ago when Mike spoke on the origin of the soul, where it came from, what it is, and, and what its disposition is. And then last week he spoke on the value of the soul. Your soul is of infinite, eternal value, making it imperative that we prioritize its care like nothing else. Now, I wasn't intending on preaching a sermon in this series, uh, but last week, Pastor Mike read this text in his sermon, and it pricked my, the Holy Spirit pricked my conscience, and here we are. The theme for today's text and the title of this message is The Battle for Your Soul. We've looked at the origin of the soul, the value of the soul, and today we consider the battle for your soul. So if you would, let's consider God's word. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. This is God's word to us this morning, and the first thing I'd like you to see from this text is your place in the war, your place in the war. There is a fictional children's TV show that being the father of two little girls was often on in our house. It's a show called Sophia the First. Yeah, some of you have seen it. <laughs> The premise of the show revolves around a young girl named Sophia who becomes a princess and embarks on various adventures in her enchanted kingdom. Now, Sophia had not always been a princess. The story begins when Sophia was an ordinary girl living in the village of Enchantia with her mother Miranda. But one day, her mother marries King Roland. And Sophia, by no merit of her own, is instantly part of the royal family. And now, being royal, as the theme song goes, Sophia must learn what being royal is all about. She understands that with her change in status, there are certain responsibilities that are now hers. And Sophia often finds herself in situations where she has to protect her kingdom, where she must demonstrate bravery and determination in safeguarding her kingdom and its inhabitants. Sophia must go to battle for the sake of the kingdom. Sophia recognizes that the stakes were high. In fact, the outcomes of her battle she faced would often result in either life or in death. Now, of course, this is a fictional show, but yet the premise of the show teaches us a similar lesson to what Peter is teaching us in this letter. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is telling these Christians that who you are now 
is not who you have always been. There has been a change take place within you, and, and Peter has spent much of this letter up to this point detailing the change that has taken place. We'll just look at a couple points. But he begins the very, at the very, very beginning of this letter. In verse 3, he says, <coughs> excuse me, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter wastes no time with his letter. He greets his audience in verses 1 and 2, and then he immediately reminds them of what has taken place within them. They have been born again, forgiven of their sins, redeemed from their former way of life. And Peter says that this has been God's plan since the very beginning. Look at verses 10 and 12 of chapter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. He's speaking of all the prophets under the old covenant. The prophets, they made careful searches and inquiries. They didn't always perfectly understand what they were speaking, but they searched and examined and, and investigated, inquired carefully to understand the meaning the best they could. They were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. Peter tells us that the whole Bible is God's story of redemption, God's story of redeeming his children from destruction, and the whole story is for you, that you might repent of your sins and believe. And in order for you ever to repent of your sins and believe, God had to take this initiative. And Mike last week explained why. God had to take the initiative because apart from God's grace, there was nothing, there is nothing within our sinful nature that would desire God, that would seek God. Our, our problem is not merely that we sin, but that we are sinners by nature. We are depraved, like Mike said. And he mentioned Romans 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Ephesians 2 goes as far as saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, God took the initiative. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In the timeless realm of eternity past, God the Father directed his love towards undeserving sinners. His unwavering determination was to rescue them from the consequences of their disobedience in the fall. And to achieve this redemption, God the Father appointed God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on human form, to live a life of, a, of perfect obedience to God and to ultimately sacrifice himself as a substitute, as your substitute, as my substitute, paying the penalty for the sins of his people. And lastly, both the Father and the Son, in their boundless love, they send the Holy Spirit to convict their children, his children of their sin and their need for righteousness and to apply all of the saving benefits that the Son obtained for his people. Do you see the stark contrast, Christian, of, of who you were and who you are now? 
Peter says that he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who you are now is not who you have always been. Peter says you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. A couple months ago, we announced Afton as a pastoral intern here at West Haven. If you're new to West Haven, Afton is our drummer. Um, and for the past several months, we've been walking through the Pentateuch, which is the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And one of the things on the side, if you will, that I've, I've tried to convey or convince Afton of is that the authors of Scripture make assumptions. They make assumptions that you already know certain things, that you already know the, the stories of God's people, and you don't merely know the stories, but you know the language in which those stories were spoken. Now, everybody who writes makes assumptions. For example, the author of a cookbook might write that a recipe calls for one cup of flour, but they're not going to tell you what a cup is, nor are they going to tell you what flour is. They are going to simply make the assumption that you know what those two items are. Peter is doing the exact same thing here. He says you are a chosen people. An alarm bell should start going off because we should have seen that at some point. In one place we've seen it is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And he says you are a royal priesthood. Or you could also say that we are part of the king's priesthood, which reminds us of Exodus chapter 19. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is the next thing Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Israel was called a, a holy nation, and they were called this because they were to be set apart. When I was a child in my child home, we had a china cabinet. Now, don't get me wrong, we didn't have anything of extraordinary value in that china cabinet. But out of all of our dishes, the plates, the bowls, and the cups, we kept the nicest ones in that cabinet. Dishes were brought out only for special occasions. Um, compared to the dishes in our kitchen cabinets, which were plastic or chipped or from McDonald's when they used to do that type of thing. I'm glad, I, I'm glad, I'm glad that landed. <laughs> The dishes in our china cabinet were special, and thus they were set apart from the others. Israel was to be a holy nation, a, a people set apart. They were supposed to be separate, meaning they were not to be living or acting like the godless nations that surrounded them. Why? Because you could say they were special, because God was with them. God's presence dwelled among this people among the nation of Israel. No other nation could say that. Yes, God is omnipresent, meaning God is not bound to any one space in particular, and yet he made known his presence in a special way to his covenant people. He chose to dwell amongst, amongst this people in a unique way. And Peter is drawing from all of this language in the Old Testament, or in Peter's world, simply the Scriptures, and he applies it to us. And he concludes with the statement that you are a people for God's own possession. Again, referencing many test texts from the scriptures, some of I've already read. Malachi 3.17, 
and they will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. In Exodus 19, verse 5, So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. In Isaiah 43, 1, But now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It is fascinating that Peter uses such precise language. Part of his audience would have been Gentiles. In other words, they were not of Jewish descent. All of us in this room would be considered Gentiles. They were not the set-apart ones. We would not have been the set-apart ones. Peter says flat out, you at one time were not the people of God. And by using all of these terms once given to the people of Israel, all the privileges and blessings and promises once belonging to Israel now belong to you, the church. By virtue of God redeeming you and breathing new life into you, you belong to him. He has brought you into his church, and you are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a treasured possession. Consider that language a little bit more. Race, priesthood, nation, even possession. Each of these terms defines your identity rather than any action you take. You do not select your race. You are naturally born into it. Likewise, your nationality is not your choice. It is inherent to your birth. When it comes to priesthood, you might be tempted to assume that it demands certain standards to uphold. And, and don't get me wrong, the priest did have standards to uphold. However, biblically speaking, the priests belonged to the tribe of Levi. Their priestly status was not primarily determined by, the, determined by their behavior, but by their lineage. And that's the point Peter wants us to see. There is nothing here that we could have done on our own. We could not have made ourselves into a race or a royal priesthood or a holy nation. God had to do it. And in his incomprehensible kindness, God has extended his hand into the world, embracing you as his beloved child. And we see that God has done this for you, verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Consider the similarities to Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. God reaching down into the world and embracing us as his children, that gives us much joy. It's a wonderful thing to remember the joy we felt when we were called out of darkness and into marvelous light. And when we saw Jesus as beautiful and as our, and as our redeeming Savior. And to continue to find joy in that day after day after day after day. But that joy alone will not lead us to a fulfilling life purpose. 
We were created to not merely enjoy God and our salvation, but to glorify God. Genesis 1.27 says we were made in the image of God. Adam and, and then Eve were not little gods. Rather, they were to glorify God by representing, reflecting, and resembling the one true God. In other words, with their lives, they were to proclaim his excellencies. Our call is the same. God's purpose in redeeming us extends beyond our personal enjoyment. It is for the ultimate glorification of him. We will not find lasting purpose in this life until we are doing all that we were made to do, declaring the excellencies of God in all of our life, at our job, within our families, with our free time and hobbies, gathered with the saints here at West Haven, all of life, representing, reflecting, and resembling the one true God. Our redemption at its very core is not centered, is not focused primarily on our joy, though it is joyous. It's primarily focused on God's glory. Yes, we are glad for our redemption, but we're also to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that others may hear, repent, believe, and receive the same mercies of God. This is who we are, and, and while I've spent a significant amount of time here, our focus today is, is on the battle for our soul. But it's important for us to remember who we are as we fight this battle, because who we are comes before what we do. The next thing we're going to see is the enemy, the enemy in the war. And as we consider our enemy in the war, Paul is going to give us a command. But it's a command that flows out of who we are in Christ. This command does not grant us the benefits of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, or a, a holy nation. Rather, in light of God doing these things for us and within us, we respond with obedience. I'm not sure who said it, but I, I heard one theologian say that the gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to earning. Sophia, in that fictional children's show, did not earn the right to be a princess. She was essentially adopted into the royal family by no merit of her own, but she also recognized that in light of her new status, she now carries certain responsibilities. Peter says, in light of who you are, a treasured possession, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. What's fascinating here is, is that Peter spends just a little bit more time reminding his readers who they are. Aliens and strangers. Or perhaps your translation says sojourners and exiles. He calls us these things because the kingdom in which we used to belong is not the kingdom we now belong. While we presently live in this world, we do not belong here. We are aliens and strangers here. We are living in a foreign land alongside the locals of the land, if you will, which is why John would write, do not love this world nor the things in this world. The world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's a privilege to be the redeemed, to be a citizen of, of heaven. And, and because we are citizens of, citizens of heaven, Paul urges us to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 
Peter acknowledges that although we are strangers and aliens here, we're still in a fallen sinful body. And the inclination of our heart, of our soul, is often enticed by the lusts of the world. Those who have the Spirit are not exempt from fleshly desires. But consider the strong language that Peter uses. These fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. That's a battle term. I think the concept of war is diluted in our culture. If you watch the Super Bowl or any any game for that matter, and you stay around and watch the post-game interviews, you're probably going to hear the star player say something to the effect of, our team just went out and we went to war for one another. But in war, the stakes literally couldn't be higher. In war, the outcome is, is life or death. We are fighting an enemy, an enemy which seeks to destroy us. Christian, the stakes are that high. Sin is never, and listen closely, sin is never just a bad habit. Sin is a mortal enemy. There is an invisible but very real battle for your soul that is taking place. And this battle requires you to take up arms and fight. It's a call to be a soldier. I've seen bumper stickers and t-shirts and coffee mugs say, let go and let God. But that sentiment doesn't work for fighting sin. Peter says that to be passive in the fight against sin will result in death. If sin is allowed to triumph, the result is the death of your soul. The fleshly lusts of this world, the sinful past of this culture are waging war against us, so we wage war against them. Paul uses similar language in Galatians chapter 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. And as I go through this list, listen and see if any of these are in your life. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have, I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The point is this. We must cultivate the mindset of exiles. We must fight against sin. Why? Because sin of any kind is not present in the kingdom we now belong. And while we are not physically present in that kingdom, that is nonetheless the kingdom we belong to. If we are a set-apart people, we should live as a set-apart people. Christian, there are certain lifestyles that we must reject. 
Consider the lifestyles associated with some of those things Peter that Paul included in that list. Do you struggle with outbursts of anger? That is sin. You can't blame the culture for your sin. You can't say I am angry just because that is who I am as a person. No, Scripture exhorts you to fight against sin, to abstain from it. What about jealousy or drunkenness? Envy or sexual immorality? All of these are items in that list which Paul says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We must fight against sin because sin is fighting against you. I want to make an obvious statement. It's a statement that a man had to tell me at a younger age. I didn't like it now. To be honest, I can't say I necessarily like it now. I didn't like it then, but I can't honestly say I like it now. Sorry. But it's what I needed to hear then, and it's what I needed to, need to hear every day, and perhaps it's what you need to hear as well. The most straightforward and evident method of killing sin is to simply stop sinning. Many individuals mistakenly believe that they must wait for a miraculous experience, a divine sign, or some extraordinary intervention to break free from sinful patterns and habits. But this notion is exactly what Romans 6 refutes. Romans 6 says you have been freed from sin. You have been liberated from sin. So it's time to stop engaging in it. Recognize that you are already dead to sin and take action to put to death any lingering sinful tendencies. How? Stop sinning. Through abstaining. Acknowledge your freedom from sin and, and refrain from it any longer. As the scriptures say in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now all of this is possible, of course, because of the supernatural strength of the one who lives within you. The Holy Spirit energizes the desire within us and gives us the power to stop sinning. We are simultaneously 100% responsible for the killing of our sin and 100% dependent on the Spirit's power to make it happen. Now, while we fight against the fleshly desires of this world against sin, we don't flee from this world either. Yes, we flee from sin, but not the world. Look at verse 12. In most English translations, verse 12 is a new sentence. But in the Greek, a new sentence does not begin here. And so the command that Peter begins in verse 11 continues into this verse. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. We are to fight against sin and kill our sin and live our life in a way that the unbelieving people around you can't find a fault with you. Now, Peter uses the term Gentile here. And yes, some of the recipients of this letter would have been Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. But remember, Peter has already told that group that this world is not their home. Right now, they now belong to a different kingdom. And so Paul, uh, Peter, using the term Gentiles in this context, is referring to those people who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. And so, summarizing a commentator here, paraphrasing, using a few of his thoughts, I believe Peter here in verse 12, is concerned about our witness of Christ in the world. 
And I think that will become more evident as we drive into the remainder of this verse. But if you aim to share your faith with the unbelieving world, your conduct must exemplify a life that is beautiful or, or excellent. It must exemplify certain characteristics. It must be authentic and honest and excellent and lovely and, and winsome and gracious and fair and, and noble and, and righteous. These are the characteristics of a beautiful life. In essence, the, the beautiful life, the transformed life, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, should be evident and visible to visible to those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. Or put differently, Jesus did not call his disciples to be secret followers, but rather to let their transformed lives shine brightly before all. And what we're going to see next in the text is the result of our killing sin and living excellently among the lost. What we're going to see next is the spoils of the war. The spoils of the war. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Kind of chuckled when I came to this section of the verse during my studies because Peter calls us to holiness and, and excellent living, and yet at the same time, Peter's not dumb. He doesn't say, if they slander you, Peter writes with much assurance and confidence that you will be slandered. The question is not if, but when. Even if we have a perfect batting record in killing our sin, which we do not, even if we live the most beautiful life 100% of the time, which again, we will not, Peter says you'll, you would still be slandered as those who do evil. In the early days of Christianity, during the reign of the Roman Empire, Christians faced severe persecution and and slander. One notable historical example, and I'm sure many of you guys know this, but would be the Great Fire of Rome in AD 64. Fire broke out, it devastated a significant portion of the city, led to widespread devastation and suffering. And the emperor, Nero, known for his cruelty, for, he, he falsely accused the Christians of, of starting the fire. The, the Christians were already marginalized and misunderstood by the larger Roman society due to their refusal to worship the Roman gods and, and the emperor. Now, many historians would say, might would say that Nero placed the blame on the Christians because they refused to worship him. They refused to worship him, and so now they would be branded as, as arsonists and, and blamed for causing immense destruction and, and loss of life. And they did. As a result, faced immense persecution. Many were arrested and tortured and killed for a crime they did not commit. And these slanderous accusations further fueled the hostility towards them. But something else happened. Despite the unfair treatment, despite the false accusations, the early Christians held firm to their beliefs. They continued to demonstrate unwavering faith amidst the intense persecution. And their steadfastness in the face of persecution ultimately contributed to the spread and endurance of Christianity throughout history. Peter tells us to live a beautiful, excellent, good lives, even in the midst of slanderous accusations, so that those who slander you 
may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I want to very quickly talk about that phrase, the day of visitation. I'm going to go quick because I don't have much time. I could find no consensus amongst scholars on the meaning of this phrase. The first argument asserts that, that Peter is talking about judgment day. The final day when all people will stand before God and be judged on the basis of their works or on the basis of Christ's works. However, in the Greek, the word the is not there. We read the day of visitation as being a single event, but the Greek is simply day of visitation. It could also mean a day of visitation, meaning a day when God's spirit gives new life to a soul dead in sin. A day of salvation as opposed to a day of judgment. Now I'll leave two comments. First, personally, I'm more convinced that Peter is talking about a day of salvation rather than a day of judgment. I believe the thrust of these verses lends itself to missions. But I also think that we don't have to choose. Because God is and will be glorified in both interpretations. God will visit on a day of salvation or on the day of judgment and he will be glorified. And I think the lesson for us is the same nonetheless too. There are two battles for the soul taking place here. In the first battle, you are fighting for your soul by killing sin, living holy lives, living in light of the kingdom in which you now belong. And in the second battle, you are fighting for the souls of those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Because a day of visitation is coming. And if that day of visitation is indeed a day of judgment, left to their own works, they'll pay the penalty for their sin. They'll experience, the lost will experience God's wrath for all eternity. But Christian, your beautiful life, your transformed life, transformed by the blood of Christ, serves as a compelling alternative to the pagan lifestyles. Through your example, unbelievers may witness your transformation and be drawn to glorify God by embracing Christ themselves. Jesus tells us something similar. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is one reason why West Haven seeks to be so active in our community. It's why we gave away gift cards this past Tuesday at the Snow Cone with a Cop event. It's why we deliver donuts to businesses every week. It's why we support the Backpack Buddies program at the elementary school and why we hosted the USD 464 administrative offices here for a few years. It's why we put the, carnival, the community carnival on during Tongi days and why we host, hosted the job fair back in February and it's why we give away hot chocolate and cider at the mayor's Christmas tree lighting and so many other things. We want the community to see our good works because we want them to see those who have been changed, those who have been transformed by Christ. We want them to see the change in us and allow that change to draw them to Christ themselves. To quote Spurgeon, there are many reasons why you should be earnest in bringing sinners to the Savior. Do you need arguments for soul winning? Look up to heaven and ask yourself how sinners can ever reach those harps of gold and learn that everlasting song unless they have someone to tell them of Jesus who is mighty to save. But the best argument of all is to be found in the wounds of Jesus. 
You want to honor him. You desire to put many crowns upon his head. And this you can best do by winning souls for him. These are the spoils that he covets. These are the trophies for which he fights. These are the jewels that shall be his best adornment. O Christian men and women, if any of you have been negligent of late in your master's servant, may the Holy Spirit make you more diligent. Friends, we are in a war for souls. A war to defend and protect our own souls and a war to win souls for Christ. So let me ask you a question. How would you characterize your life to date? Do you find yourself too comfortable here? It's crucial to evaluate whether we are truly living as strangers and aliens, detached from the world's fleeting values, or if we have become overly entangled by the temporary pursuits of a worldly existence. Our lives will look different. We'll prioritize those pursuits that have a lasting, eternal significance. Rather than being driven by by worldly achievements, we'll prioritize what God prioritizes. We'll be generous and compassionate with our time. We'll serve others with humility and love. We'll invest our time in prayer and reading God's word. And yes, that time spent is an investment that will reap eternal dividends and will endure trials and will share the gospel with many. Reflecting on the way our life should be can lead us to realign our priorities and embrace a more heavenly perspective, focusing on what truly matters beyond this earthly existence. And above all, our lives will be marked by a desire to glorify God in everything we do. This morning, maybe God has convicted you of your sin, sin that you have become far too comfortable with. If that is you, Christian, repent. Turn from your sin and rest in the finished work of Christ. Perhaps you have never placed your faith in Christ, meaning if you were to stand before God's throne and he asked you why he should allow you to enter heaven, your default answer would be to talk about all your trophies, all the good things you have done. But scripture tells us that all of our trophies are like rubbish. They're like the waste thrown out to dogs compared to the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. Apart from faith in Christ, you can't stand before a holy God. Your sins will condemn you. But God has made a way for you. God the Father appointed God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on human form, to live a life of perfect obedience to God and ultimately sacrifice himself as your substitute, paying your penalty. And God sends you his spirit to convict you of your sin and your need for righteousness. And so if you are sitting here today, or if you're watching online and the Spirit is convicting you of your sin and your need for, right, need for righteousness, then repent of your sin. That means turn from your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the saving benefits that the Son obtained through his life, death, and resurrection, they will be placed upon your soul. Repent and believe. Your very soul is at stake. I'm going to have Pastor Kirk come and pray for us and and then we'll sing a song together. But if you have any questions regarding salvation, I'd love to talk to you at the conclusion of the service, and I know Pastor Kirk would as well. You can also fill out a Connect card or scan that QR code. 
um, and let us know you'd like to talk about salvation or perhaps you'd like to talk about baptism or church membership. We'd love to have that conversation with you as well. Thank you for your attentiveness, church, as I sought to preach God's word. Brother.